And turn to Matthew chapter 2. We'll take a break from 1 Samuel for a week to come to Matthew chapter 2. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12. So I'll read it first and then go through and explain some more to you from the text. Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, or from you shall become a rule, for from you shall become a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. I've entitled this message, Messages from the Magi. Messages from the Magi. There uh, are a lot of things about the Christmas season that we think uh, are so based on some of the songs that we've seen and sing and based on some of the things that have been written to us in uh, Christian history, but they're not all things that come from the Bible. There are things that we understand about the birth narrative uh, that actually, they, they might be true, but they might not be true, but the point is they don't come from the Scriptures, they just kind of come from tradition. One of the most misunderstood people, characters uh, in the birth account, in my opinion, are these magi. Who were they? What were they doing? Why does Matthew include this? And I think if you look at Scripture, look at the Old Testament, look at what Matthew will then write throughout the rest of his gospel, the, the magi teach us something. So the Magi just didn't appear, and we kind of read this story so that the, the readers of Matthew would go, aw, sweet story. That's not the point. Th there are reasons that Matthew has included this in his narrative, in his account, in his gospel. So I want to flesh some of those out for us. And again, <clears throat> sometimes we get our understanding of Christmas, not from the Scriptures, but based on tradition the song, We Three Kings, stop right there. There's a problem. <clears throat> the Magi <coughs> weren't, in fact, kings. That actually didn't start to get taught until the 6th century A.D., all the way up to about the 15th century when, 16th century, when people like Calvin and Luther said, hold on a second. 
So when the Scriptures came to Europe, when people could now read the Scriptures in their own language, there was this, as you know, this great reformation. And people like Bible teachers like Calvin and Luther read the Scriptures, and there was kind of this recovery of what does the Bible say? We know there's tradition out there, but what does the Bible say? And nowhere in the Scriptures does it say that the wise men were kings. Nowhere. More about that a little bit later. But we understand from this that sometimes songs and Christmas songs might have some things that are based on tradition, but not the Scriptures. We also know the song, We Three Kings of Orient Are. It's the parody, Smoking on a Rubber Cigar. That's nowhere in the Bible. So the fact that they're kings isn't in the Bible. We don't know what they're smoking. Don't, it doesn't say anything about that in the Scriptures. <clears throat> but if you also looked at art, you would see similar things. You'd see the kings, uh, the, the wise men portrayed as kings in art. And as a matter of fact, if you go to the Uffizi Gallery in Florence, some of you may have been there, you'd see a painting called The Adoration of the Magi, and they're wearing crowns. Again, tradition, not Bible. So, here's my question. Who were these magi, and why does Matthew tell us about them? And that's what we're going to look at today. Remember, Matthew is writing to show that Jesus is king. Different gospel authors write for different reasons. They're not writing a biography of Jesus. That's not what the gospels are. They're different writers writing for a purpose. They include things that point to that purpose. They leave out things that other writers may include that don't fit their purpose. <clears throat> so, Matthew's writing to show that Jesus is king. You see that in Matthew 1.1, book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Jesus the anointed one, the son of David, king, son of Abraham. So, right away, Matthew tips his hand, shows us why he's writing. And all throughout Matthew, you're going to see things about the kingdom of God. So, Matthew's writing to show that Jesus is king. How does the narrative of these wise men point to that? How does the narrative of the wise men point to Jesus' rule? And remember, Matthew's writing to a particular people in his time, but the Scriptures are preserved for us. So why, what do we need to understand from this narrative? What does this passage teach us? Not first and foremost about the wise men, or the magi, if you will, either one, but what does this narrative teach us so that we understand more about Jesus. He's the main character of this. The wise men just serve God's purposes. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk through the text pretty quickly. Knock on wood. <clears throat> pretty quickly. Um, and I'm not going to give any points. I'm just going to walk through the text, explain some things. And at the very end, I'm going to give you four messages for Christians in the story of the Magi. I'm going to show you why I believe Matthew's writing this to us. So, let's walk through the text. Let's start in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Let's stop right there, just explain a few things. This is Herod the Great. Jesus born in Bethlehem of Judea during the time of Herod the Great. This is the famous, powerful Herod that was famous for his building projects. Politically speaking, uh, very great, uh, a grand leader He's also known, and we see this also in Matthew chapter 2, for the massacre of the innocents, where he saw to it that all the male, uh, all the little boys in not just Bethlehem, but the region of Bethlehem, two and under, were slaughtered. That was his attempt to kill Jesus. So there are 
some things Herod is known for. This is the time when Jesus was born. He's the ruler, Herod the Great. And it says, behold, pay attention, that that behold in the Scripture is so important. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the Great, listen to this. Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. A a baby's born. Why are people, uh, uh, astronomers from the east, coming to Jerusalem to ask about this baby? There's something about this baby that gets the attention of some astronomers who would have been kind of like priests in that day. This is a common thing you see actually in the Scriptures. You see kings using astronomers to kind of look at the stars and guide them religiously, politically. You see this in the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. You see this here. You see Nebuchadnezzar do this. So this is what these people are, these these religious astronomers, sometimes functioning kind of as priests in pagan societies, called wise men, the Greek word magoi, where we get magi, you can think of magician. So these people that look at the stars, they, they know things, they discern dreams, interpret dreams, they serve kings. Why would they come to Jerusalem to ask about the king of the Jews? There's something about this baby. So wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. They're probably from Persia, Babylon, that area. And, and I'll, I'll explain to you why, why people think that they're kings or why the tradition started to come out that they were kings. Actually, in Isaiah chapter 60, there's a prophecy. It says, nations shall come to your light. Think of the star guiding them. Nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. That's why in tradition, Christian tradition, people started to say, well, this is the fulfillment of that. These people are coming to the light. The, the, the nations are flocking to Jesus, and they're called kings in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 3. But as you know from prophecy, in one sentence in the prophets, you'll have something that happened to Jesus' first coming, and then later on the sentence, something is displayed where it's not actually going to happen until the second coming. But the text doesn't say in the New Testament that these men are kings. As a matter of fact, in the second return of Christ, kings will come to worship Him. So Isaiah 60 verse 3 isn't a prophecy about His first coming only. In Isaiah 60 verse 6, a few verses later, it says, A multitude of camels shall cover you. That's why the wise men are often seen as riding on camels. New Testament doesn't tell us that that's how they came. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense, nothing about the myrrh there, and shall bring good news and praises of the Lord. So you can see why Christians started saying that these men were kings. But, but in that day and age, astronomers, uh, wise men, magoi were not kings. They served kings. They were counselors to the kings, but they themselves weren't kings. But Matthew just says that they are magoi or wise men from the east, and they come to Jerusalem. And they're saying, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So again, they come from the Babylonian area, Babylon, Persia, and they come looking for the king of the Jews. Now why, here's a question, why would these men from the Babylonian Persian area come to Jerusalem looking for the king of the Jews. Big deal that they're looking for the king of Israel. 
They've got, a, they've got other kings. They've got other leaders in their area. Why are they looking for a king from one particular country, namely Israel? Why would they do that? Well, remember, the area that they're in, Babylon, Persian area, Persians conquered the Babylonians, the area that they're in, there have been Jews there from the, from, from the 6th century B.C. You remember the Jews early on, Old Testament, thinking back to Old Testament, they are disciplined by the Lord, taken into captivity into Babylon. And then in the 6th century, they're actually freed, able to come back to their land. But a lot of them actually stayed there. So there was a Jewish community in this area where these wise men would most likely be from. And these Jews were waiting for their king to be born. And what did people who knew their Old Testament understand? They knew that the king of Israel would one day be the ruler of the entire world. And so somehow these wise men, uh, we, but text doesn't say how, we can kind of speculate. Somehow these wise men get the idea that the king of the Jews is someone to be noticed, the coming king of the Jews. And that king of the Jews would rule the entire world. So they ask about him, and they say, end of verse 2, for we saw his star when it rose, his star. So they know somehow this king of the Jews that will reign over the world is going to be accompanied by a star. They somehow know that. Maybe they were taught that by the Jews in that, in that area. But this is something that's based on the Old Testament. The Old Testament talked about a star shining, a light shining when a future king would come. And so the, these men know that. They might not know everything about Jesus, but they know that there's a coming king who will be announced, if you will, by a star. This is from Numbers chapter 24, 17. I'm going to talk about that passage in a little bit. But let me just read this verse. I see him, but not now. So it's, it's, this is Balaam the prophet speaking, saying, I see this future king, this ruler. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. So, so someone's coming. I know a little bit about him, but, but he's not coming yet. And notice what he says. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So a star's coming, and there's a king, a scepter that's coming with that star. That's the one that we're looking for in the future, says Balaam. So the, old, the, the, the people of this first century, the Jews, would know that the coming Messiah, the ruler of Israel, who will rule the nations, is going to come as a star comes. Star comes, king comes. These wise men from the east say, where's the king of Israel? We saw a star. So, prompts them to leave their area, travel to Jerusalem. You might say, why didn't they go to Bethlehem? They didn't know to go to Bethlehem. Where would you go if you were looking for the king of the Jews? You'd go to Jerusalem. So they go to Jerusalem. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, so they're in Jerusalem, they ask Herod the king, the king of the Jews, Herod thinking of himself as king of the Jews. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Of course he was troubled. He's the king of the Jews. This man was arrogant. This man cared about his own political power, as so many kings do. That's what he cared about, preserving his status. So when someone comes in and says, where's the king of the Jews? He'd probably raise his hand, but they're not talking about him. They're talking about a different king of the Jews. That's a problem. It's not just a problem for Herod. It's a problem for all the Jews in Jerusalem because Rome is letting the Jews have their religion to a certain extent. Rome controls Jerusalem. 
but you all can have your Judaism. You all can worship the way you want. Just don't cause any problems or else we're taking that away. So when there's a threat to the power of the king of the Jews, and there were, when there could be a, a Jewish civil war, if you will, that's going to cause problems with Rome. So it's not just Herod that is troubled. Of course, Jerusalem's going to be troubled by that. Verse 4, and assembling all the chief priests, the scribes of the people, he acquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and then they quote Micah 5.2, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. From you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. He gets all his people together, says, where do the scriptures say the king of the Jews is going to be born? And they say, Bethlehem. More about that in a moment. Verse 7, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. So when did you first see the star? Because when they see the star is when the king of the Jews, Jesus, is born. So he's going to know how old Jesus was. When did you see the star? On this date. Okay, on that date is when the king, this king, this threat to my throne was born. Verse 8, and he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. He knew now that it was Bethlehem that would bear the king. So he says, go to Bethlehem, search diligently for the child. When you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. We know why he said that, right? Was he going to come and worship the child? No, he wanted to come and kill the child. We know that because later on in Matthew 2, verse 16, says, Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, they don't come back to him. When he'd been tricked by them, he became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or younger, according to the time that he ascertained from the wise men. So, the wise men don't come back to him. He's tricked by them in the words of Matthew 2. And so, if he can't kill Jesus, he's going to kill all the boys in that area, two and younger, because that's how old Jesus would have been. He ascertains the timing. So, he's going to kill all the boys, two and under, in Bethlehem and in that region. Herod wants to eliminate this boy king, which is also why the Magi weren't at the manger. They would have come later, maybe one to two years later. But this is what's happening. Verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's, that's the Greek way of saying they were really, really, really joyful. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Think about why. They've been hearing that the one who's born king of the Jews, who's accompanied by a light, will be the one that rules over the nations. That gets their attention. They see this star. They start coming. It's a supernatural star. It's not somehow these planets aligned. No, it's a supernatural thing. God put a star there at a time for a time, for this purpose. Puts a star there. They see it. They know what that means. And the star is leading them. It literally leads them to Bethlehem over the house where Jesus would have been as a young boy, maybe a year to two years old with Mary. They're, they're seeing the Bible come to life. Old Testament prophecy, hundreds of years old, come to life, and they're a part of it. 
That's exciting. I mean, I get excited just teaching this passage. They were living it. This is exciting to them. They're, this is the king of the Jews, and, and we're coming because evidently they believed that report. They believed what they knew. Because when they come, they fall and worship him. They don't come and just say, oh, the scriptures said this. Isn't that interesting? There he is. No, they, their hearts are knit to this king of the Jews. They fall and worship him. Verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasuries, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. They go and they worship the king. It's interesting, they come to Herod and they ultimately will not listen to Herod. They're just, they just need Herod to tell them where's the king. He's the one that wants to be looked up to. They come to this child <laughs> in this home and they fall down and worship and they bring gifts like gold, which is a, gold that you give, which is a gift that you give to a king. They give frankincense used in offerings and they give myrrh, an interesting gift to bring to a child. It's Myrrh is an element used in burial. They bring myrrh, an element that will be used in burial to, to take care of the deceased body. As we know, this young boy would grow up and it wouldn't be Herod that killed him. It would be him choosing to lay down his own life for people, for sinners, for me, for you. So they bring him gold, they bring him frankincense, and they bring him myrrh. Verse 12 ends the account of, of for us, the paragraph for us. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Being warned in a dream. Now, who do you think would bring them that dream? God. God's in control of this whole thing, not Herod. Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, why does Matthew tell us this? What's the big deal? It's not just to say, interesting. He's writing for a purpose. He wants his readers to understand some things. So, four messages for Christians in the story of the Magi. Here's the first message in this that comes from this account. Jesus' kingdom cannot be thwarted by kings of this world. Jesus' kingdom cannot be thwarted by kings of this world. There are two kings in this passage, aren't there? Herod and Jesus. Herod tries to eliminate Jesus. Herod built the, the, the fortress at Masada. Herod rebuilt, was part of rebuilding the second temple. I mean, Herod's done some amazing things. But he can't get to Bethlehem and find this baby that's been born the last couple of years. Can't do it. Wonder why? Because Jesus' kingdom cannot be thwarted by the kings of this world. Herod is troubled in verse 3. He plans to kill Jesus. Jesus is called the king of the Jews in verse 2. He's referred to as one having a scepter in verse 6. And verse 11 shows gifts that were brought to kings. So again, two kings in this account. One of them's a baby. One of them's a powerful man. The powerful man can't eliminate the baby. A star guides the wise men to Jesus' home. A star accompanies the coming king, we know. Now, I want to I talk to you for a moment about what's happening in Numbers 24. Why is that such an important prophecy? Why do you need to understand that prophecy to see this reality that Jesus' kingdom can't be thwarted by the kings of this 
world. In Numbers chapter 24, here's the context. The people of Israel have been uh, redeemed, have been rescued from Egypt. They're out in the wilderness, and now they're coming into the promised land, and they start to take the land owned by all these other kingdoms. Now, just remember in the big story of Scripture, who owns this land? Not the Amorites, not the Moabites. It's God's land. It's God's land. He creates a people, starting from Abraham, brings them out of Egypt and says, this is where you're going to live, and you're going to drive out all the nations, all these wicked nations. God was going to use His people to pronounce judgment on the wickedness going on in that area, and He's going to bring His people into this land. So as His people come in and start defeating this group of people, that group of people, this group of people, one of the kings in that area, the king of Moab, Balak, Balak says, I need to hire a, 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 a diviner, a, a, a searcher of the stars. I need some, some spiritual counsel, and they'd often look to the stars. I need some spiritual counsel to help me deal with this coming people of God. And, and remember, the Old Testament talks about Israel as the son of God. I need, I need this, these, this prophet, this diviner, this searcher of the stars to come and curse, take care of the Son of God, Israel. What's happening in Matthew 2? Herod actually summoned the wise men secretly, these astronomers, to show them where, tell them when the star appeared so that he could take care of the Son of God. Similar things happening here. I wonder if Balak was successful. He hires Balaam, this prophet, hires Balaam, this prophet, to pronounce a curse on Israel. It means more if Balaam, the diviner, the prophet, pronounces this curse. So he hires Balaam to pronounce this curse on Israel. And I'll fast forward through the story. Balaam is told by God, no, 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 you're not going to curse my people. These are my people. This is the land I'm giving to them. And you see, starting in Numbers 24, or actually starting in Numbers 22, these oracles. So Balaam the prophet doesn't curse Israel. He actually blesses them. And I'll summarize it for you. This is their land. God has promised this land. God's not a man. He doesn't lie like other men. When he says they're going to have this land, they're going to have this land. And Balak, the king, the king, is like, I hired you to curse them, and now you're blessing them. At the end, one of Balaam's oracles, at the very end, he says this, Numbers 24, 17. I'll read it for you. I read it a little earlier, but hear it again now, knowing the backstory. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Balaam the prophet is saying, listen, you're not, I'm not going to curse these people. These people are going to be blessed. They're going to rise. They're going to flourish in this area. Balak, sorry to tell you, your days are numbered. God has chosen these people. And he says, oh, by the way, there's one coming. I can see him, but I can't see him. I, I know the prophecy, but I don't see him yet. It's coming far off. And he's going to come when a star appears and there's going to be his scepter. So when a star appears, the king's going to come. What does that teach us? Balak can't stop the kingdom of God. Herod can't stop the kingdom of God. The governments of this world in the 21st century cannot eliminate the kingdom of Jesus Christ. They can impose laws and say, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't preach this, you can't say that. They can do it all they want. 
What's God's response? Psalm 2. <laughs> he laughs. The kingdoms of this world go against God. They have throughout all of history. And God simply laughs. It doesn't work. Herod the Great should have been able to kill Jesus. He had the power, but he couldn't do it. God intervened. God gave these men a dream. They went another way. Herod couldn't get to him. And then he sends, God sends Joseph and Mary and Jesus, this young boy, to Egypt for a time to get out of the jurisdiction of Herod. He, he can't reach him. Jesus' kingdom cannot be thwarted by the kings of this world. I think we need to remember that today. Jesus' kingdom cannot be thwarted by the kings of this world. I'll give you a future pronouncement of the king of Jesus, King Jesus compared to the kings of this world. Listen to Revelation 17, 14. These will wage war against the Lamb. Speaking of foreign governments, governments aimed at attacking Jesus Christ, these will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them because He is the Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with Him are called and chosen and faithful. That's us. We are overcomers because He's an overcomer. Think about it. Balak, the king of Moab, can hire someone to pronounce a curse that somehow is effective, and God interrupts that prophet and says, you're not going to do that. You're actually going to pronounce a blessing on my people. Herod the Great tries to find out from the wise men, where is this boy? Can't do it. Doesn't work. God's involved. Jesus' kingdom cannot be thwarted by the kings of this world. Let's look at our second message to learn from the Magi. Jesus' kingdom cannot be thwarted by the God of this world. When I say God, that's a lowercase g. That's how 2 Corinthians 4 refers to Satan. Jesus' kingdom cannot be thwarted by the God of this world. Little g, God, Satan. In Matthew 2, just outside of our text, verse 16, as I read you earlier, Herod kills all the male children. In the Bible, when you see children dying, children being murdered or offered up as sacrifices, it's usually at the hand of some foreign god, some foreign government, some anti-god government. You see the slaughter of children as something done by wicked people. What do you see when Jesus comes on the scene? He brings the children to Him. So the care of children is something uniquely given by God. The mistreatment of children is something that's satanic. Well, Herod kills the children two years old and younger, and you kind of, Satan's not mentioned in our text, verses 1 through 12, but when you hear of the slaughtering of children, you have this idea that you know who's behind that. You know this from the rest of Scripture. And Matthew, actually in a number of places, talks about the kingdom of Satan. He's powerful. He can do certain things. He's got certain jurisdictions, certain power, a certain realm that he operates in. And Matthew is showing us at the very beginning of his gospel in our text before us, he's showing us that there are kingdoms at war. There are kingdoms at war. And Jesus will grow up, no longer a boy, now he's a man, and he's invading the kingdom of Satan. And the kingdom of Satan's powerful. So Matthew introduces that idea early on in Matthew chapter 2, but you're going to see it fleshed out through the rest of his gospel. If there's this gospel that Matthew's writing that shows that Jesus is king, there's also another kingdom presently. 
And Matthew's going to show how Jesus' kingdom is actually stronger than the kingdom of Satan. Consider this. What happens as soon as Jesus is baptized? The Spirit drives him to the wilderness to be tempted by whom? By Satan. So at the very beginning of this, his public ministry, the Holy Spirit has seen to it through the pen of Matthew that we understand Jesus is going to start his ministry right away, Jesus and Satan. Let's see what happens there. Jesus overcomes the temptation, but I want, what, what I want you to get is what does Satan offer, offer Jesus in his last temptation? He offers him the kingdoms of the world. Satan controls the kingdoms of the world. So he says, if you'll bow to me, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. As you read on in Scripture, you realize that Jesus will inherit all the kingdoms of the world, but it's because he dies to purchase them, and they're given to him by his Father, who really owns all the kingdoms of the world. But in Matthew, he's showing us Satan owns the kingdoms of the world, and he offers them to Jesus if Jesus will just fall down and worship him. Jesus doesn't do it. He overcomes the temptation. But in the back of our heads, we think, I'm going to tuck that away. Satan, kingdom, ruler of the kingdoms of the world. Then in Matthew 12, Jesus casts out a demon from a man. And people are saying, see, he's, he's, he's doing that by the power of Satan himself. And Jesus says, Satan doesn't come in and war against Satan. And Jesus actually says that he's come in and he's bound the strong man, Satan, He's bound the strong man, and he's plundered his house. He takes this man away from the realm of Satan and brings him into a right mind. Jesus goes into the house of Satan, if you will, and takes this one away from Satan. And Jesus says in Matthew 12, the kingdom of God has come. So Matthew introduces us in this little narrative here of of Jesus and the wise men and what's happening there. He introduces us to the fact that this isn't just a baby. The kingdom of God is now here. And the kingdom of God is stronger than the kingdom of Satan. In Matthew 13, Satan causes harm, but it says that there's a future judgment coming for him. So the kingdom of Satan is powerful, but there's a judgment coming for him. And then listen how the gospel of Matthew ends. We refer to this passage often in our church's life because it gives us the mission of what we're here to do. But notice how the Great Commission starts. Why does Jesus say this? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all I've commanded you. Why the all the authority part? Go back to Matthew 2. Baby King Jesus, Herod the Great, baby King Jesus wins that battle kingdom of Satan. Bow down, I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world. Satan's not in charge. The kingdom of God, when it comes, it overpowers the kingdom of Satan. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 13, there's a pronouncement that one day this Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire and he'll suffer forever. He'll be judged forever. He'll be ended forever. Kingdom of God, more powerful than kingdom of Satan. The whole gospel ends with I'm in charge of everything. Have you got that message? 28 chapters, disciples. Have you got that message? Okay, we get that message. You control heaven and earth. So what does Jesus say? So elect Christian officials in every government. Nope. Because I control everything, you go and you make the gospel known, and you will see the light invade the darkness.
And then as people come to Christ and you baptize them, you teach them to obey all I've commanded you. Because Jesus is in control of everything, He launches us into this great commission work. His kingdom is different than the kingdoms of the world. His kingdom is not a kingdom of political power. His kingdom is a kingdom about changing the lives of people caught in darkness. We need to hear that today. And it was, it was introduced to us in Matthew chapter 2 when He told us about this little baby king. Jesus' kingdom cannot be thwarted by the God of this world. Second, Jesus' kingdom, Jesus' kingdom ways, I should say, often seem weak. Jesus' kingdom ways often seem weak. So again, you've got two kings, a baby king and Herod the Great. Who's going to win? You'd think Herod the Great. No, it's this baby king. That's just like Jesus to do it that way, just like God to do it that way. His ways seem weak. And for this, I want you to know more about Micah's prophecy. So you see that in verse 6, Herod asks the wise men, where, where's, this, where's this, I'm sorry, he asks the, the scribes and the chief priests, where's this child king going to be born? And they say Bethlehem of Judea, and they go back to Micah chapter 5. Now, here's just a little note for Bible study, okay? If you want to see all the riches that are in the Scripture, do, it, do more than just this. Reading your Bible, you see, oh, there's a prophecy from the Old Testament. You flip back to Micah chapter 5. Yep, it's right there. Okay, now it came true in Jesus. Go deeper than that. Go back to Micah. Hang out in Micah for a while. Why is this prophecy in Micah? What did the original readers understand about this? Understand the context of Micah. What's Micah writing about? Understand all that, then go back to Matthew 2 and go, oh my goodness. Okay, so just a little tip on Bible study. Don't just look at the cross-reference. Oh yeah, it's a, it's a fulfillment of prophecy. Know, know why Micah was given that prophecy and know how it comes true in Jesus. Let me give you a little bit of Micah, okay? Micah is a book that warns the people of God for their sin, but also warns the nations who are coming after the people of God. Micah is a book that gives not just warnings, but also messages of hope in unique ways. Micah points to a royal, kingly deliverer that's coming one day. The word, the name Micah, Micah itself, me, ka, me in the Hebrew, who, ka, is like Yahweh, like Yah, short for Yahweh. Who is like Yahweh? So there's a book in the Old Testament written by a prophet whose name is Who is Like Yahweh, which says, nations, you're coming after God's people, not going to end well for you. God's people, you've got some sin to deal with, you've got to take care of this, and there's coming a deliverer in the future who's going to rule the nations and rule his people perfectly. The book is about the fact that who is like God. It actually ends like that in chapter 7. Who is like God? And so there's this prophecy given in Micah chapter 5. And in Micah chapter 4, it says nations will come to worship the Lord. And then later on in chapter 5, it says nations will also come to make war with God's people and be defeated. So, so two things are true there. Some nations will come and worship the Lord. Some will come and war after God and His people. But in the middle of that, it says that from Bethlehem, there is one coming 
and He's going to be a ruler of His people. Again, let's read chapter 2, verse 6 of Matthew. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. It's this pronouncement of a, a, a coming royal ruler, and he's going to come from Bethlehem. Nowhere town, and he's going to come from Bethlehem, and he's going to shepherd his people, Israel. God's ways are not like everybody else's ways. You would think that the ruler would come from Jerusalem. You would think the ruler would come from a prominent place. No, he's going to come from Bethlehem. And that's showing us that Jesus' kingdom ways are often backwards. They seem weak. doesn't seem like they'll work. And I'll tell you again, Matthew fleshes this out in the rest of his gospel. Jesus' ways are different. Matthew 8. Jesus is doing miracles. Someone's attracted by those miracles. Hey, I'll follow you wherever you go. I'm ready. I want to come after you. All right. If you really want to follow me, I've got nowhere to lay my head. I don't stay at the $1,000 five-star motels. Hotels. Are there five-star motels? I don't think so. It's like contradictory. He doesn't stay at the five-star hotels. He's, Jesus wasn't wealthy. So he tells a would-be follower, I've got nowhere to lay my head. That seems backwards. Jesus, the Son of God, leaving riches without number, born within a cattle stall. That's what we just sung. His ways are backwards. They don't make sense to us. They seem weak. Jesus, the one healing people, casting out demons, has to sleep outside. Nowhere to lay my head. Matthew 10, he sends his disciples out. And, they, and he gives them the power to cast out demons and to heal people. And when they preach, he gives them this preaching power where people repent of their sins. I mean, that's phenomenal. And of course, everyone's going to respond greatly to their preaching and their ministry. No, because his ways are confusing sometimes. He sends out his disciples as sheep in the midst of wolves, and they'll be dragged before governors and kings for his sake. Matthew 20, Jesus' ways are different. He tells the disciples, look at the rest of the world, how they do leadership. They lord their authority over people. They threaten, they abuse, they manipulate. They lord their authority over. You are not to be like that. You lead by serving. Jesus' ways are different. And again, Matthew introduces that to us when he gives us this prophecy from the book of Micah, which shows that you want to talk about a king? Let's not talk about Jerusalem. Let's talk about the little town of Bethlehem. That's where God's powerful king comes from. God's ways seem backwards, seem weak. <clears throat> Consider this. In the world's eyes, when Jesus died, he lost. Pilate won. The Sanhedrin won. Caesar won. But what did God do in that death? He achieved our salvation. Jesus died and my sins and your sins were forgiven if you trust in Him. In the world's eyes, we're going to silence Christianity. We're going to threaten the apostles, or they wouldn't have called them apostles. We're going to threaten these men preaching of this Jesus of Nazareth. We're going to threaten them. They threaten them. They throw them into prison. What happens in Acts 16? They're singing songs of praise to God in prison, and the jailer gets converted. In 
the world's eyes, or even in the church's eyes sometimes, this is bad news, they're in prison. In God's eyes, God's ways, no, no, I'm going to convert this jailer and his whole household. In the book of Acts, we're going to kill and silence all the Christian, all the Christians. We think, oh no, what's God doing? What's happening? This can't be good. And so they threaten Christians with persecution. The ones they kill go to heaven. The ones that escape the persecution flee. They leave Jerusalem. And what do they do? The book of Acts says they go out and they proclaim the gospel as they're on the run. And all of a sudden, people are converted from different parts of the world. Whoops. Jesus' ways are different. Maybe in your eyes, I'm just a wife and a mom. I'm just a single adult. My marriage isn't the greatest. I'm just a man who's struggling to provide for my family. I'm not really much. I can't lead people to Christ. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. And 2 Corinthians says, my power is perfected in weakness. Jesus' ways are different. Of course we're not great. Because then people would look at us and say, man, Christianity is wonderful. Look at how wonderful that person is. No, no, no. The power is meant to be shown through weakness because then it's shown that the power can only come by God. God's ways are different. How is this baby going to defeat Herod? Well, he did. The baby's still alive. Herod's dead. How is Bethlehem going to compete with Jerusalem? Bethlehem brought forth the ruler who's alive today and saved his people from their sins. God's ways seem weak, but they're not. So my advice is, be weak. Own your weakness. Well, I'm just really old, and I'm not as smart as other people, and I can't do this. Great. Now have faith and obey God and see what He does. There are some preachers who would tell you, you're not weak, you're strong, and you're powerful as you have arthritis and are limping around. That's not the message. The message is we are weak people, but God works His power through weakness. So see that in Matthew chapter 2. God's ways are different. We might not be the most popular. We might not be the smartest. We might not be the coolest, the hippest, but God works through His weak people to display His power. Trust that. He's done it for centuries. Jesus' kingdom ways often seem weak. Fourth and finally, Jesus' followers are supremely devoted to Him. Jesus' followers are supremely devoted to Him. We see this in the wise men. We see this in their response to Jesus. They rejoice that the star has led them to this one they've been looking for, they rejoice, and they exceedingly rejoice, and they come, and what do they do? They worship Him. They know that He's the ruler. He's the King of the Jews that's going to rule over the world, and they pay homage to Him. They bring Him gifts. Now, it's important to see that a, a, a lot of times when you think of bringing gifts to a king, kings often exchange gifts. Like, like people often exchange gifts with people. Like if you see a president hosting another foreign leader, they'll, you don't see this on TV all the time, but they'll often bring each other gifts. And what they're doing when they both bring gifts is they show their mutual benefiting of one another. It's just a symbol of that. Well, here, the, the, these wise men are the ones that bring the gifts, and there's no gift given by the baby. 
Now, we understand that salvation will be a gift that comes later, but there's no formal gift given by the baby. This is a sign that we are in your service. We bring these gifts to you, and you are not giving anything to us right now. It's a sign of their service to him. So, Herod had summoned them, do what I say. They go to this king, and they bow before him and treat him as the king, this baby king. That's a good picture for us. That, that's our posture, always bowing before Jesus, always wanting to bring our best to Jesus, honor Jesus. That word we, we uh, see in, let's see, where is it? Verse 7, then Herod summoned the wise men. That word summons, interesting. He authoritatively communicates a demand. Herod, and again, I told you, kings would use people like these wise men as their spiritual counselors, looking at the stars, tell me what to do. You're in touch with deities, tell me what to do. So Herod thinks he can order these wise men. He authoritatively communicates to them a demand. But who else spoke to them in this account? Well, we know it was God in verse 12 because they were warned in a dream. And who in the birth narrative has been warning people in dreams? God has. They warned, he warned them in a dream not to return to Herod, so they departed to their own country by another way. They don't listen to Herod. They listen to this one who warned them in a dream. These people, I'll call them worshipers of Christ, they don't listen to Herod. They go and they bow the knee to King Jesus, this baby king. And God has seen to it that they would do that. God showed the star. God led them to Jesus. That's the way it happens. God leads you to Jesus. You bow the knee to Jesus. It doesn't matter if Herod the Great tells you what to do or somebody else tells you what to do. Your allegiance is to Jesus. So, is there any environment where you are pressured to cool your love for Jesus, to not give Him the adoration He deserves? Young people, Friends of yours, when you go to school, are you sometimes excited about Jesus and want to live for Him and serve Him, but then you get around other people and it's really kind of unpopular? You don't really talk about Jesus because they'd make fun of you, or you don't really say Christian things because they'll mock you because they stand for other things. Is there any way where you're tempted to cool your relationship to Jesus? See these wise men. They don't listen to Herod. They go, they bow the knee to Jesus, and they bring these gifts. They're worshiping this one. doesn't matter who tells them otherwise. Adults, you ever tempted to cool your love for Jesus when you're around certain family members, golfing buddies, friends? Take a note from these people. They come and they bow to Him. These people who are often in the, the presence of kings and instructed by kings and even summoned and commanded by kings, they bow the knee to Jesus. So, may we be devoted to Christ in this way. Worship Him, enjoy Him, speak of Him, regardless of what people say to us. Let me say it very plainly. Be excited publicly about Jesus, not in some fake way, but because you've spent time with Him, you know Him, you love Him, you trust Him. Demonstrate that publicly. Tell people, sing to Him, talk about what He's done for you. Well, that's just not what the guys do when we all hang out. Who cares? Publicly worship, praise Jesus, speak of Him, adore Him, love Him. Don't be afraid of using those words. 
So, this is what the wise men teach us, these lessons. Matthew gives this account for certain reasons. Now, I know I threw the song, We Three Kings, under the bus earlier, but I want to point out the good in it, okay? Let me finish with these two verses. Myrrh is mine, its bitter perfume, breathes a life of gathering gloom, sorrow, sighing, bleeding, dying, sealed in the stone-cold tomb. The song is talking about the three, I'll call them wise men, that come to baby Jesus and give Him a gift. And all through Matthew 2, we realize He's the one that wins. But then the song points us to the myrrh that's going to be used on His body about 33 years later as He's in the tomb because He died. This baby was born to die in the place of sinners. That's what the purpose was for His life. He would grow up, understand. He's there to give his life as a ransom for many, and he would do it. So we remember this baby's death, not at the, kings of Her- not at the hands of Herod, but because he chose to lay down his life for his sheep. But that dead king came out of the tomb, and the Scriptures teach that he's alive today. So this verse of the song, born a king on Bethlehem's plain, Gold I bring to crown him again, king forever, ceasing never over all us to reign. Let's pray. King forever, ceasing never. That is you, Lord. You, the one we speak to right now, born in that manger, lived perfectly, live obediently, gave yourself because of your love for us, died rose again. You intercede for us. You say you're coming back for us. You say that you will rule the nations in a very physical and public way one day, and we trust you. Father, would you guide our hearts into greater worship of your Son even this week? Pray that we would be given opportunity to speak of him before family and friends. Father, I pray that as we go out of here with warm hearts, remembering His faithfulness to His people, what He's done, His power, pray that that would launch us out into acts of service, acts of love, acts of evangelism. This week, allow us to be people who talk about the hope that's in Christ. Father, give us joy. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.